0: Hello, and welcome to the Crossway Christian Church Podcast. We are a church who wants to practice the way of Jesus together. If we can help you in any way, let us know. And be sure to check out our website at crosswaycc.org. Now let's get back to the podcast. Well, good morning. Let me welcome you as well, no matter where you may be joining us from. My name is Dave Smith, and I am the downtown campus pastor. Always a privilege to be able to preach God's word to you. Let's pray and dive into our message together this morning. Father God, we do thank you for your word, that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word or message of Christ. And God now, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of every heart be holy and acceptable to you, I pray, through Jesus Christ, my rock and my redeemer, amen. Matthew Saroya was born in Karachi, Pakistan. He comes from generation after generation of Christians. While preparing for ministry, he became part of the Pakistani Christian radio club. At age 18, he began proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ over the airwaves in three different languages: Urdu, Punjabi and Hanko. Because Pakistan is an Islamic republic, his ministry began to experience persecution, him and specifically. And I don't have time this morning to tell you all that he's experienced, but let me share a few things. In 1994, he wrote a drama called Messiah, which led to the conversion of many Muslims. Suddenly his name appeared in the paper and on posters calling for his death. In 1995, he was arrested for evangelizing. He was told to renounce Jesus and accept Muhammad or die. He refused So he was beaten, and after he was beaten, he was strapped to a block of ice for several hours. But Jesus protected him from dying, and his captor and the whole captor's family came to faith in Jesus. Matthew's ministry continued to grow, but so did the opposition toward him, especially by Muslim fundamentalists. In 2001, his home, his church, and 40 other homes of people belonging to the church were bulldozed, by those who opposed him. Conversions continue. The niece of Osama bin Laden comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And with that event, bin Laden's entire family sets out to kill Matthew. Three weeks later, he is preaching and he is shot at, and a bullet ricochets off a pillar and lodges in his side. But he can't go to the hospital because that would endanger his life. Police protection is denied. On January 15th, 2004, a grenade is thrown into his office. Luckily, a few minutes later, excuse me, a few minutes earlier, he had left. At this point, Matthew and his family go into hiding. Again, his picture is put everywhere. There's a ransom for a price put on his head. Matthew escapes to Nepal with the plan of bringing his family from Pakistan once things calm down there and he can find a place for them to stay in Nepal. During the eight months they're separated, his family moves almost 50 times to escape death. Eventually, they reunite in Nepal. Matthew starts the Messiah World Mission, which from 2004 to 2015, plants 50 churches, starts two orphanages, and a school for the blind. They move to the U.S. in 2015 and are placed in New Hampshire. Uh, During this, he continues to support his mission by his own funds. He gets a job and he works at rebuilding 18 churches and two orphanages that were destroyed in Nepal during the 2015 earthquake. He comes to Crossway Christian Church with the opening of our downtown campus. Matthew still serves his brothers and sisters in Pakistan and Nepal, helping fund the advancement of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Today, we finish our series on the Beatitudes, Good News Now, with these words from Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 260 million. That's how many Christians live in countries where they experience high levels of persecution. Where is it most dangerous to be a Christian? North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia. Where is the church growing fastest in the world? Number one, Iran, which is ninth on our persecuted list. And number two, Afghanistan, which is number two on the persecuted list. There is a connection between persecution and the growth of God's church. Persecution refines the church, confirming the legitimacy of its life and witness. It filters out casual believers. In fact, I know of believers in other parts of the world that have actually prayed for persecution towards us that we might repent of our false gods of money, sex, and power, our consumerism, our materialism, and return to Jesus, our first love. You may not be experiencing persecution, but it's likely you will if you seek to follow Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember what I told you, Jesus says. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, They will persecute you also. Paul writes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution expresses itself in all kinds of ways. Arrests, imprisonment, torture, assassination, martyrdom, attacks on life and property, restrictions on churches and Bibles, education and job discrimination, legal restrictions, and denial of rights. Why do Christians experience persecution? Because there's such tension between the message and way of life of a Christ follower and the mindset and lifestyle of the world. Conflict is inevitable. Sooner or later, devoted believers will be mistreated for what they believe and how they live. But Jesus tells us, We're blessed in the midst of it because we have the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is worth any cost. This is our good news now and our big idea for today. The kingdom of heaven is worth it. You may not be experiencing the kind of persecution Jesus talks about here. You may feel persecuted because of this pandemic and all that it means for your life. You may wonder if it's worth it to follow Jesus on this broken down planet. You may be tempted to give in to the passing pleasure of sin, forsaking your faith. Don't do it. The kingdom of heaven is worth it. Any price, any cost, any sacrifice we make on this earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not all persecuted people are blessed. Only those who are persecuted, Jesus says, because of Righteousness. We could be persecuted for all kinds of things. Some people think they have been persecuted for their faith when it's actually for their offensive behavior. Following Jesus means more than believing the right things. God calls us to demonstrate our faith by how we live and act and speak to other people. Mean spiritedness is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. God calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that everything we say and do and think and feel might be a fragrant aroma to him. What is this righteousness then that Jesus is talking about? It's what we've been studying in the previous seven Beatitudes. Those who are poor in spirit, mourn the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemaker. We can break all eight Beatitudes into two groups of four. Each group ends with a reference to righteousness. The first group ends in verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the second group with our verse today, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, the first three Beatitudes, poor in spirit, mourn and meek, they express a a holy longing. It's natural that they should be followed by a description of hunger. The next three describe not longing, but fullness. This hunger for righteousness, it begins to be satisfied with overflowing mercy and purity of heart and the power to make peace. And persecution comes because of this very righteousness. Now the next verse, in verse 11, Jesus says persecution comes, he says, because of me. So the righteousness that brings persecution always involves a relationship with Jesus Christ. True righteousness comes only in and through him. But this begs a question, doesn't it? Why would a life of righteousness overflowing in qualities like mercy and purity and peacemaking bring persecution? We gain insights into that question for Luke 16 verses 13 to 15. Here's what Jesus says. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who love money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. So there it is. There's the insults and the reviling and the sneering. They love money. And Jesus' attitude toward money is an attack on their love of it. So Jesus responds, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Jesus communicates that love of money is treason against God. You can't serve two masters. This is true and consistent with his purity of heart. And it brings him persecution. Our hunger for righteousness and our expression of it will ultimately bring persecution. Even when we don't speak out against an ungodly lifestyle, the way we live, if our righteousness is coming from a living and active relationship with Jesus, will challenge the values of those around us. And they won't like it. Now, I've shared on other occasions about the stillbirth of our first daughter, Bethany Joy. What I've not shared is our experience with the medical community during those months of pregnancy. Bethany had anencephaly, failure of the brain and skull to develop properly. Now, the first time our first doctor told us about that, she said, this is a 100% chance of death. I recommend immediate termination of pregnancy. That is abortion. We refused and thus began several months of hostility from some in the medical community. Nancy and I believe that life begins at conception. We weren't going to abort, period. End of discussion. We didn't preach about it. We just refused to do what many in the community wanted us to do. And it made them angry. When we began to look for other doctors, because the first one had recommended abortion, I couldn't believe the hostility I had on the phone. I had a doctor tell me angrily, your baby is not even human. They started to call us up and talk us, try to talk us into aborting. It amazed me what was the source of the vitriol and the venom and the anger for simply Nancy and I seeking to be the parents we believed God wanted us to be. Why were they so mad? Because our view and our stance on life challenged their own, and they did not like it. When we live as those who are poor in spirit, we'll expose the proud and arrogant. When we mourn over sin, We will anger those who delight in it. When we are meek, we'll make the unrestrained uncomfortable. When we hunger for righteousness, we'll offend those who thirst for immorality. When we're merciful, our actions will uncover the heartless. When we are pure in heart, we'll offend those who pursue many gods. When we make peace, we will anger those who seek to divide. When we allow the Jesus we follow to live his righteous life through us, we will experience persecution at some point, in some way, from someone. In John chapter three, 19 to 21, we read this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, It will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly plainly, that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Some people hate the light. They will resent us, perhaps persecute us, because our light in Christ exposes their darkness. Others will do the truth and come into the light, freely admitting that the good in us has been done by God. The two responses are persecution and conversion. Persecution discussed in our verses 10 to 12. Conversion pointed to in verse 16, where Jesus says, they'll see your good works and do what? Glorify your father in heaven. But this begs another question. What about all the people, all the unbelievers in our lives that are not persecuting us, nor converting? Well, it may mean that we're keeping our light under a bushel, that we're not living out the righteous life of Jesus, allowing him to live his life through us. Or we are living it out, letting our kingdom values show, and people are moving towards persecution or conversion. Neither one necessarily happens immediately. If you look at the Gospels, you see that the Pharisees were angry with Jesus on all kinds of occasions, but often other factors like the presence of other people kept them from immediately expressing their anger. In fact, there are those around us right now who are torn on the inside, partially hating the Jesus within us and partially attracted to him. So we all need to look in the mirror are we hungering for and living out Jesus' kind of righteousness? Or is light and life shining through us? If not, we need to repent and allow him to live more fully through us. If we are living as his apprentices, that is his disciples, then we can rest in him whether we experience persecution or conversion. Why? Because we belong to the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is worth any cost including any persecution that comes our way. The kingdom of heaven is worth it. In Matthew 13, Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and then in joy went out and sold all that he had and came back and bought that field. What is the kingdom of heaven? We'll say more momentarily, but in short, the kingdom of heaven is the reign of God in your life. It comes through faith, surrender to Jesus. It's also called the kingdom of God, they're synonymous. The kingdom of heaven is so valuable, Jesus says, that losing everything on earth and gaining the kingdom is worth it. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. He's talking about the value of the kingdom, the worth of having God rule over you and for you. If the all wise, all good, all-powerful God of the universe is ruling over you, then he can use whatever happens in your life to your good, no matter how painful. This is what Paul says in Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, the kingdom of heaven is a gift through faith in Jesus. The point here with the parable is that even if it cost you everything, it would be worth it. The man sold everything he had, and he did it with joy. He did it with joy. The kingdom of heaven is worth it. Jesus goes on to make the point again. Next two verses, again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went and sold everything he had, and bought it. There is no greater treasure than the kingdom of heaven. No matter what we're going through on this earth, the blessing of the kingdom makes it worth it. Using different language, Paul says the same thing in Philippians 3, 7 to 8. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss, he says, for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, because of the surpassing worth, think treasure, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. In the parables, the men sell everything they have so they can have the kingdom. Paul loses everything so he can have Jesus. These are identical treasures. Jesus brings us the kingdom of heaven. We experience the kingdom of heaven through faith in him. We don't buy or barter for it. It is a gift to be received like a child. Jesus says, verse three, chapter five, blessed are what? The poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, Jesus says, will never enter it. The point in the parables and in Paul's confession is that those who receive the kingdom treasure it above all else. The point of selling everything you have is to show where your heart is because Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. The good news is, is the kingdom of heaven is worth any cost, including persecution. So let's move from talking about the value of the kingdom to what it is. The kingdom of heaven means the reign of God, not the realm of God. The reign of God, not the realm of God. We tend to think of kingdom as a place, But this is not how Paul and Jesus use the word. It means the reign or the rule of God. The kingdom of heaven refers to God's saving reign, not his total sovereignty over all things. Now, in one sense, God reigns over all, so everything, quote, is his kingdom. But the kingdom of heaven refers to his saving reign. That's why Jesus tells us to pray, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that means that the coming of God's kingdom will be the extent to which God's reign comes so that we treat his name as holy and his will is done joyfully and obediently. That's the kingdom of heaven, like it's done in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is both a present and a future reality. It's called the now and the not yet kingdom. It's partially fulfilled now, but we totally fulfill when Jesus comes back again. So what does it look like to live in the reality of the kingdom even when you're being persecuted? For that, let's turn to the book of Acts, the history book of the early church. Peter and John are the first disciples we see experience persecution. In Acts chapter 3, Jesus works through them to heal a man lame from birth. Well, naturally people gather around to this miracle and so Peter begins to preach Jesus Christ crucified and risen, calling people to repent and believe. This attracts the attention of the religious leaders who seize them and put them in jail overnight. The next day they bring them out and they ask them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches Jesus Christ, proclaiming salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. After conferring together, the religious leaders order them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. What do Peter and John say? They ask, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. So the religious leaders threaten them further and let them go. Peter and John return to their own people and report what happened. We see the the reality of the kingdom in their life as they pray these words. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of this earth rise up And the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Consider their words. They confess that God is ultimately in control of all things. What a great thing for us to remember in the eight months of this pandemic, in the political bickering, in in any persecution that may come our way, God is in control control. He's the God of creation who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He's the God of revelation who spoke by the Holy Spirit through David. And in this Psalm 2 foretells the world's opposition to Jesus with nations raging and peoples plotting and kings standing and rulers assembling against the Lord's anointed. He's the God of history who caused even his enemies Herod and Pilate, Gentiles and Jews, all united in a conspiracy against Jesus, caused them to do what he and his power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Look at how the early disciples understand the king to whom they belong. You made, you spoke, you decided. Do you view God this way? Are you resting in his kingship and in your place in his kingdom? Are you trusting that he has everything under control even when others oppose him? With their vision of God clarified, this God who makes and speaks and decides when with themselves humble before him, they begin to pray. First, they pray that God would consider the threats of the religious leaders. That is, God, just bear them in mind. Second, they pray that God will enable them to speak his word with great boldness. Unfazed by these threats. Third, that God would heal and stretch out his hand to perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of Jesus, thereby confirming the truth of their words. Is this how we would pray (laughs) if we were threatened for our faith? I imagine many of us would pray for protection or deliverance. Nothing wrong with that. If you read 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul prays that God's word will spread, but he also prays for deliverance from himself for himself because he says not everybody has faith. There are wicked and evil men out there. What I want you to see is even in Paul's prayer and the one we're looking at here is that what is first and foremost in the minds of these disciples is the advancement of the kingdom of heaven, not their personal safety. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is worth it for themselves and for others who need to know about Jesus and whom the kingdom is found. What happens next? Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Perhaps you hear this and say, well, I'm not a bold person. The good news now for you is that biblically, boldness is not a personality trait. It's a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the boldest people I've ever met was a spectacularly shy woman named Donna, who was on my first prison ministry team at my first ministry. She was like incredibly shy. But we went to a Pendleton prison in Indiana, and I watched her come alive as the Holy Spirit got a hold of her, and she shared boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling these inmates that even in prison, they could be free in Christ and experience the kingdom of heaven. Paul tells us in Romans 14, 17 that the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God referred to here, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. These are present realities that Christians possess now. This is the now part of the kingdom. When we come to know Jesus, he comes to live in us by, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that produces not only this boldness, but righteousness and peace, and joy, even in the midst of persecution. If you were to keep reading through the book of Acts, you'd come to Acts 5 and see that Peter and John are in fact arrested and flogged. And it says they went on their way rejoicing, fulfilling Jesus' command, because they consider themselves worthy to suffer in the name of Jesus. In Acts 7, Stephen, a Christ follower, is literally stoned to death for his faith. And as he's dying, he sees Jesus in heaven, and he says, Lord, don't hold these sin against them. In Acts 16, Paul and his companion Silas are arrested and beaten with rods and stripped and thrown into prison. Their legs put painfully apart in stocks. Very painful. And it says they're praying and singing Christian hymns. How can they do that? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit in them. It's the Holy Spirit that produces the righteous life of Jesus in us. This is the reality of the kingdom of heaven invading those who follow Jesus. Still, if we're honest, the command to rejoice in the midst of persecution and insults and false accusations seems shocking. How can Jesus tell us to do this when we're, excuse me, hated and mocked, maybe even tortured and murdered? Because he knows better than anyone else that heaven, the reward of heaven will more than compensate exponentially so for any pain we experience on this earth. Rejoice and be glad, he says, for great is your reward in heaven. So now he points us from the present reality of the kingdom to the future one. He calls us to trust him, to believe that heaven is an exponential reward for every pain. And to the degree we believe what Jesus actually sees in heaven, we'll be able to rejoice and be glad in persecution. Paul describes his own persecution in 2 Corinthians 4 like this. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And then he reveals his heavenly focus for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You feel that? That's the weight of the treasure. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary. All this is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Where are your eyes today on what do they focus? Political bickering, celebrity gossip, fantasy football, who's doing what, where, when, why, and how on social media. Ask God this week to help you turn from the seen and the temporary to the unseen and the eternal, Jesus and his kingdom. There's a scene I love in the movie, The Return of the King, the final chapter in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The enemy has broken into Minas Tirith. They are literally banging on the door. There's all these soldiers and a big troll. On the other side of the door, you have a few soldiers of Gondor with their spears. And right here, sitting down, you have Gandalf and Pippin. And Pippin rather forlornly looks up and says, I didn't think it would end this way. End, Gandalf says. No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. What? Gandalf. See what? White shores. Beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. Well, Pippin says, that isn't so bad. Gandalf says, no, no, it isn't. We do not know everything about heaven or our reward in heaven, but we do know this. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. God will dwell with his people. We will be his people, he will be our God. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes for the old order of things has passed away. Jesus wants us to desire the rewards of heaven More than the rewards of earth. Jesus wants us to have treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. Jesus longs that our hearts are so set on the reality of the heaven, the kingdom of heaven, that leaving this earth is a cause for rejoicing. There's no other way we can rejoice and be glad in the midst of persecution unless we believe the kingdom of heaven is worth it. How do we keep our hopes in heaven? We consider the prophets of old, as he mentions. We draw inspiration from them and others around the world and throughout history who've been persecuted for their faith. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We consider him who endured such hostility from sinful people so that we will not grow weary, and lose heart. Will you pray with me? God, forgive us when our present world overwhelms us. Thank you for the reality of the kingdom, this now and not yet reality that those of us who know Jesus belong to. And God, with Paul, help us to focus not on the temporary and the unseen. And God, help us not to build treasures on earth, but to look to you, the unseen, the eternal, and allow your righteous life to live through us so we will not be ashamed at your coming. Thank you for the encouragement and the blessing and the reality of the kingdom of heaven. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.